Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. The show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, quality handcrafted pickups made with lots of love down in Detroit City. I love these guys. Check them out, pariahpickups.com. And if you want to become a supporter of the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast, go to patreon.com slash Music. Lots of fun stuff there. Patreon.com, Brent Jensen Music. Okay. You'll recall that last week, the chat that Andy Curran and I were having was cut short by a scheduling conflict. This week, Andy is back, and we get into the songs that make his skin vibrate. It's an awesome list. Check it out. Well, I think I had mentioned to you that in, in the spirit of that Cars record, Live at the Elma Combo, that I had... Uh, that I'd purchased myself and showing it to the guys in the band. It was be careful what you wish for, because it turned into quite a labor of love for all of the members of Coney Hatch, yeah. getting their paws on it, um, shipping it around the country, getting it all signed. The team that we put together for that with Vic Florencia and Doug McClement and the audio from that show was taken from our live stream um, that we did down at the Elma Combo, which that whole episode down at the Elma Combo was kind of driven by the, the, new, the new CEO and owner of the Elma Combo, Michael Weckerly, who's mm-hmm. a friend of mine and, and a big Coney Hatch fan. And he kept saying, Andy, we would love to have Coney Hatch play back here. And he was aware that in 1983, we had played a couple of nights there and he said, let's bring you back. So it was a nice memory for us to, to go back to the Elma Combo, but my God, for anybody that hasn't been down to that venue or just go online and visit elmacombo.com and see what Michael Weckerly's done down there. This, this ain't your daddy's Elmacombo. It's a state-of-the-art facility with a beautiful SSL recording console, digital recording console, and they can stream at um, 4K and 96 high-res audio out of there. So the material that we were able to walk out of there with, Brent, was, was just like state-of-the-art. So I think that by the time you get that record, you should be able to hear that the quality of it was definitely surpassed what we thought we were going to get. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'd heard he'd done some really great stuff with the Elmo since uh, reopening it. So good on him. That's awesome. Yeah. And we did have some fun. Like they've got a beautiful LED screen down there. So um, we took advantage of that and, you know, had a different sort of backdrop for every single song. Yeah. It was a lot of fun that night, but but part of the deal that we struck with Michael was, hey, um, we'll give you the friends and families family deal to, to come down and play during COVID. But, and for the discount, um, do you mind if we do this record? And and it started off as a small undertaking going, we're going to offer it only to the people who showed up at the, at the show that night, 50 mm. people. And then our merchandising guy said, well, that's crazy. Like, you know, do more than 50. So we bumped it up to 100. And then a couple guys at some local record stores started saying, Hey, you know, we would take some copies and Mm -hmm. got some emails from people in France and Germany saying, how do we get copies of Coney Hatch live at the Elma combo? So, so we bumped it up to 300 and after 300 at this point, there'll be no more. Oh, you know, I would think that there would be a lot of demand for this record. Well, we signed and we literally signed and numbered, a hundred of them, but from from a hundred to three hundred are also uh, numbered but not signed. And like I said, there's a nice little flyer that goes inside that has a set list. And I mean, it was I, I, it was a labor of love. And Brent, I don't know whether we'll do that again because it literally <laughs> was like the, it was like the killer dwarves. I mean, we might as well have had a 
a, a clothesline and put pegs on them and dry them while they were drying, you know, every step of the way was, was a, a labor of love, but I, we're pretty proud of it. It's funny that you said that because I was, I think the video is for keep the spirit alive. And, uh, I was, it, I was picturing that in my mind. Yeah. As you were talking yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, they're friends, uh, of mine and I'm, I'm going to have to reach out to Russ and, and Daryl and tell them what we did and how we stole their idea. But we bored, <laughs> we bored a few influences. Like I said, with that, with the, with the just real DIY bootleg feel with the cars record. I love that. I, I think that's terrific. I'm glad you guys did it. I look forward to hearing it. Nice. Yeah. Okay, sir, are you ready to get into this great song list that you provided me with? Uh, absolutely. I know, I know it did it a couple of weeks ago. Was it, it, and remind me, is this songs that make your skin, uh, the hair stand up on your arms and your skin vibrate? Is oh, that yes. the list? This is the list yes. of songs that make Andy Curran's skin vibrate. Okay, well, if, if you'd be kind enough to walk me through that, I know I sent it to you, but the email's not in front of me. Oh, I got them all right here. So we're going to start with Aerosmith, Nobody's Fault. Great selection. Yes. Aerosmith, for sure, are one of my all-time favorite bands. And, and I, when I talk about Aerosmith, I, it just brings, when I hear specifically Rocks and Toys in the Attic, those two records, they just bring mm -hmm. me back. Um, they are the, the, that's one of the records that was the soundtrack of my youth. I saw the band many, many times, but to me, um, in my humble opinion, the, the, the rocks record is the, is the definitive best Aerosmith record in the world. Um, I, I wore that thing out, the grooves on that thing. I listened to so many times. And when you asked me about the list, I was kind of caught between, um, back in the saddle and nobody's fault, but, yeah. um, you know, th those two really, really just did something to, and, and they touched me in my soul and, you know, when I think about nobody's fault and, and how how it starts for any musicians out there, you know, there's a bit of sort of feedback and studio ambience that you can hear in there. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit there's these volume swells and it's almost like you can hear the members of the band moving around in the studio. And then when it kicks in, it just it's like kicks you right between the eyes and the guitar riff and the way that that Steven Tyler sings. um I absolutely love that track and I'd never get tired of it. This whole record, you know, I think there's nine tunes on this record. The only one I don't care much for is the last one, Home Tonight. But Home Tonight? The, yeah, I hear just you. The last Child, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, like, rats, rats in the Cellar. Yeah. And but I, I wasn't, and then back in, in when I was listening to that record, Brent, I was just, I might have just maybe got a, my first bass guitar. So mm. um, I, ha I had no idea of all of those sounds that were happening, how they were made and everything. And, you know, I did some research on that track, and that's one of the ones that Brad Whitford um, yeah. had a big hand in writing. And, and he wasn't one of the main writers. I know he, he contributed to a lot of the records, but it was usually Joe Perry and, and Steven Tyler. So, it's by far one of my favorite Whitford tracks. And, you know, there's a lot of really cool instrumentation on that record and the guitar tones are, are so wicked. And, um, yeah, I, that was really tough for me to, to put that on or back in the saddle, but easily those are my two favorite on that record. I agree. Rocks is probably right in the middle in terms of like just the best Aerosmith record, but like, and what a string of records that was like, get your wings, toys in the attic, rocks, draw the line. Even after that, yeah. You know, unbelievable. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you, when you know, for anybody who's followed Aerosmith, to to think about the fact that they were all pretty messed up, a lot of them on drugs at the time, and how they were um, even functioning, uh, messed up on drugs and writing songs like that is pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. And playing like that and singing like that, you know, yeah. That, I, I think that's that. Sorry, that's the beauty of it, Andy. I think right. It's just you can hear it and draw the line particularly. You know, yeah. there's no there's no pretension. It's just they just go for it. And they were yeah. messed up at that point. Yeah, and, and, you know, I said this at the beginning, too. Um, I think there's certain things in, in our lives just as human beings that resonate. And whether it's a record or a movie or um, a smell of someone's perfume that reminds you of somebody or mm-hmm. um, a candy bar or a gum that you ate that just zaps you back in time and for me, Aerosmith is one of those bands, especially Toys in the Attic and, and the Rocks record that just, um, they, they've become part of my DNA. And, you know, if, I, if ever I'm driving around in my car, lots of times I'll just put up Spotify and, and I'll, you know, put up a Thin Lizzy record that I haven't listened to in a long time. But the nine times out of 10, uh, the Rocks album kind of makes its way onto my playlist. Oh, yeah, for sure. I call it an oral time machine almost, you know, it's, it's this close to being magic really in terms of bringing you right back there as close as you can get possibly. Yeah. And a hundred percent agree on that one, my friend. Yeah. So next you've got cheap trick and off Wiedersehen. This is a great pick too. Yeah. Auf auf Wiedersehen. So uh, my obsession with um, cheap trick uh, is, is a long sorted one because um when Coney Hatch had started out uh, as um, just a cover band, the original guitar player in the band was a guy by the name of Paul Van Remortal, and Paul was eventually replaced by Carl Dixon when he when he left the band. But Paul turned me on to Cheap Trick, mm-hmm. and we used to play California Man, and you know, and I bought the the Heaven Tonight record and was like completely blown away, and ended up grabbing some tickets to go see them at Massey Hall and just instantly fell in love with the band. And I remember, you know, being kind of freaked out as a kid with their album covers going, okay, well, there's two really cool looking guys. And then you flip the cover over and you go like, well, one of the guys looks like Satchmo from the Bowery Boys. And the other guy looks like, like an accountant or something like what's going on with this band. But for anybody who hasn't seen Cheap Trick live, they pack a wallop. They, they are a gritty, four on the floor bare bones rock band and and i love like really love everything about him i think xander's one of the best lead vocalists in the world mm-hmm. and the obsession with the band led to me eventually purchasing a 12 string bass because i was like how does tom peterson get this sound yeah. and so Auf Wiedersehen for me has a couple things that that are one of the reasons they make my skin hair stand up on my arms when I listen to that track. So it starts off with 12 string bass and, and it's just Tom Peterson, you know, wailing away on it. But when that track kicks in, it's very, it's that I always found cheap trick had an alternative rock side to them where they almost were a little bit punky. Yeah. They had lots of things like, um, you know, some of their more radio friendly things like dream police or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, didn't I, didn't I hear you crying and all of that stuff that was on the radio, but there's a very rock punky edgy side to that band. Mm-hmm. And I, and I love the lyrics of that song. Um, I love Xander's vocal and just the punky in your face vibe to it. And um, that heaven tonight album, 
on a par to the Rocks album and they, the amount of times that I, I played that nonstop. I loved High Roller. I loved Heaven, Heaven Tonight. Um, you know, Surrender might be my least favorite song on that record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Cheap Trick, you know, for all of their radio successes, almost had this kind of underlying malevolence about them. You know, if you listen closely to the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then I'll get a really, really great compliment where somebody will say, hey, dude, you know, your voice reminds me of Robin Zander. And I'm like, thank you. I can die a happy boy now because um, I wear my influences on my sleeves and I'm, it's not intentional to go. I'm going to I'm going to try to sound like Xander, but I probably just listen to so much cheap tricks that, that my brain processes melodies and uh, cadence and things like that. Um, but um, an interesting story for you. And I can't really recall the steps that led to this, but I think it was one of my close friends um, who lived in Chicago said that she was working with Cheap Trick and would I like to come out to the show? And they were playing Wilson Amphitheater. I went backstage and the guys were hanging out and I went over and introduced myself to Robin and Rick and said, I, I, I highly doubt you guys will ever remember this, but, you know, Coney Hatch opened for you guys back in, in the 80s and we, we had a, a big, long European tour that was supposed to be Coney Hatch and Cheap Trick and Rainbow that got canceled. But I said, wow. I just wanted I just want to tell you that I love your band. And eventually they found out that that I uh, on the work side, I was working with Rush oh. and they and they were friends with Rush and said, oh, you got to say hi to those guys. And we love their merchandising. And so I called the merchandiser and I said, hey, did you know that, that the Cheap Trick guys really love what you're doing? He goes, oh, that's really cool. Let's put together a little swag pack for him. So he mailed it up you know, these really cool sweatshirts to the guys in Cheap Trick and then started working with them. Long story short, and I don't know how it happened, I ended up becoming friends with Robin Zander and and going to shows and, you know, emailing him and the tour manager and then found out that their guitar tech was a big Coney Hatch fan. So again, it's like, how did this happen? I, (laughs) I, I don't even, I don't even know how this happened. Those guys know that, that, you know, that I'm a bit of a, a, a cheap trick freak. And, um, mm. when they played recently, they played the Molson or the, the Budweiser stage, it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and they were opening for poison and I had been invited uh, with my wife to the show and we were hanging out backstage. And one of the guys in the road crew came up to me and said, the guys know that you've seen a million shows and Robin wants to know if there's, if you have a request for tonight. And I'm like, come on, he didn't say, he didn't say that. And I said, and he said, yeah, he did. And I said, well, that's easy. I'd like to hear Alfita Zane. And so they put it into the set and I'm standing side stage and Xander kind of gives me the thumbs up. And um, wow. And then they gave me the set list after to take home and they wrote on the set list and they wrote on the set list and it said Alfie. I guess it was a short form for instead of writing Alphabetus name, but yeah, they actually took a request from yours truly that night and inserted it into the set list. That is an incredible story. Yeah. The only wow. thing that would have been better if is if they would have given me the nod to come out and, and sing a couple lines on it, which I know it off by heart. I could I could sing the entire song to you right now if I had to. Oh wow, that's fantastic, Andy. Yeah, so that one's that one's got a place near and dear to my heart. That is so cool. You know, it's funny that you you said that earlier. I I've often thought that you sound a lot like Xander in your delivery. 
Um, you know, it's, and I think a lot of it is that when I get to a certain range, my voice kind of blows up and gets distorted, kind of like when Xander, when Xander gets up there. But uh, I, again, Brent, it's not intentional. I think it's probably the fact that I've listened to it so much that, that I'm, I'm influenced in, in a subconscious way. But I, I've told him a bunch of times by, by car, dude, you're, you're my favorite all-time singer. He's like, ah, get the hell out of here. Let's go have another beer. You know, things that, 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 that yeah. such a, That's fantastic. Isn't that such a great thing? I love that. Yeah. That's yeah. a great story, too. Good for you, man. That's awesome. Okay, I'm curious about this next one. Tom Petty, Into the Great Wide Open. This is 91, I think, this came out. Yeah. I, I, it's funny, you know, we we... We all grow up with favorite artists, and and, and some of them um, have passed away, and some of them are still around. And I have to tell you, the day that that I heard that Tom Petty passed away, I was like, I, I, I don't recall being so melancholy um, after losing. You know, obviously a close one was was Neil Peart because working with the band for forever and and having formed a friendship with them, and obviously we were all devastated when Neil passed away, but. Just losing um, Tom Petty, I was like, oh my God, you know, like I looked forward to every single release that that guy, like I didn't, I, I never, ever even questioned a new Tom Petty record came out, I would buy it. Um, pretty much had everything he'd ever done. My brother, my elder brother, Mike, turned me on to the band when when Breakdown was um, in a movie called Heavy Metal, and that was mm. when how I discovered discovered that that band. But fell in love with the, with the first two records primarily of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and I, I wouldn't say I lost it for the band, but damn the Torpedoes and and, and the subsequent records after that, um, I didn't have as much passion for as I did um, the first two records, the debut, and I think the other one's called. Um, you're going to get it or, or I, I can't remember what the second record was called, but I played mm. the crap on both of those records. <laughs> um, but, but when into, when into the great wide open came out, there was just something so uplifting about that entire record. And when I, I believe that he worked with Jeff Lynn. And so I really loved the production on those records, but the, the simplicity of the, of those songs and, and you know you pick up a guitar and try to learn them and you're like oh man it's only like two or three chords but to write them and then to put the melodies and and the lyrics and i remember when the video came out with johnny depp in it and um mm -hmm. it's just like that that record you know running down a dream and a couple of the other songs like i i can i can listen to that record a million times and i never get tired of it but there there's something really special about the chorus of into the great wide open in, in that entire song and the lyrics and i love one of my favorite lyrics is he met a girl out there with a tattoo too you yeah. know and uh, and i was just like oh my god like he there's a sense of humor in his lyrics too I think I think if you look at, at Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, there's sort of definitive records in a band's career that they they are in cruise control. But if you if you come up with a great record, it kicks you into the stratosphere. It happened with Aerosmith with Pump. I liked the record, but you know they were kind of they were just treading water, and then Pump came out and boom, they became again one of the biggest bands in the world. And I think that Into the Great Wide Open did that for Tom Petty too. Just kicked him into the the stratosphere of of an iconic, one of, the, one of the biggest artists in the world. I'm a firm believer that that record was part and parcel of that. Yeah. And this, I think, came after Full Moon Fever. Is that right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. around 89, I think, yeah. Now, 
Let's talk about Deep Purple. Highway Star is your next pick. I have a couple of questions for you about this. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, as as a as a full blooded male that that gets in his car and sometimes um, puts on some just cranks up the music, that one. Yeah. You know, I might have got a few speeding tickets to that one, uh, literally. <laughs> but um, but the, the just the driving nature of it and the vocal performance and and the bass line and the guitar solos and, and um, you know, one of my earliest purchases was Machine, Deep Purple Machine Head, mm. and obviously obviously bought it for Smoke on the Water. But when they, when you get deep into that record. I'm a, a Leo, baby. Yes. I'm a Leo, and and um, lazy, and those other tracks. But Highway Star, I loved it so much that eventually I ended up in one of the reincarnations of my lineup. We used to play that song live, and it oh, was wow. so much fun to play live. A friend of mine, Michael Burkowski, was saying oh, saying a lot of the higher stuff that I couldn't hit, but this just got such a driving force to it that makes you want to speed and and get and get a speeding ticket and get on the highway and just like. <laughs> Just press the pedal of the metal and go. Yeah. Know? Oh, totally. That introductory scream that Gillen does at the very beginning just kind of sets the tone for the tune, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like it's like a rocket taking off. Yeah, and and you know, um, again, for the the non musicians listening or the musicians listening, like I never realized like a lot of those sounds back then that I thought were distorted guitars was actually John Lord's keyboards through yes. through some some Marshalls. So the beginning of of Highway Star. Um, is a perfect example of it, and and he doubles all of the of Richie Blackmore's guitars on Smoke on the Water, and you know go back and have a listen and, and a real close listen, and, you, and you'll realize that a lot of the the grit was actually John John Lord's B3 organ, you know, pumped through some some Marshall cabinets, and and that's what really gives that feel that it's actually two guitars, but it isn't. Oh yeah, and a lot of bands tried to copy that later, and they could never pull it off. That it's no. a ha- it's a Hammond B three, I think, right? Yeah. That, it just it, nobody could do it like John Lord. It was just terrific. It added so yeah. much texture to those songs and grit, like you say. I think you're right, Brent. I don't know any other band that has been able to emulate that um, that sound because it was just a big ball of rock with him and Richie Blackmore. Oh yeah. Now I was going to ask you. Are you a fan of the uh, Mark III lineup, the Burn record, after Gillen left, Coverdale and Glenn Hughes came in? Do, do you like that stuff at all? Um, I, I am, and primarily because of Glenn Hughes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I love Glenn Hughes. I love his voice, and you know, I bought the Hughes Thrall records when he played with Pat, when he played with um, Pat Thrall, who was in, in Pat Travers' band, mm-hmm. and then subsequently I, that led me down a deeper um, search for. Tommy Bolin, who replaced Richie Blackmore yeah. in Deep Purple, but but I had a lot of the Tommy Bolin solo records, and then went even further back when Tommy Bolin was in James Gang, and then found out that he did some fusion records with some crazy fusion guys with uh, mm-hmm. you know Alfonso Johnson, and there's a band called I think Energy. So I became a real big Tommy Bolin fan, but not so much a fan of that um, particular Burn era. But um, mm-hmm. the, the the record Come Taste the Band. Yes. With Tommy Boland and Glenn Hughes, and I think Coverdale might be the singer on that. That is, that's my my second favorite Deep Purple lineup. I believe so. I think that Blackmore left for Rainbow. Tommy Boland came in, and I think Coverdale stuck. It was just a mess for a little while. Guys were just coming and going like crazy, but I think Coverdale stuck around after Stormbringer. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I don't know a lot of people that are super familiar with Come Taste the Band, the Deep Purple record, but that is a really cool record. And um, there's some pretty funky stuff going on there, too. Mm -hmm. There's some great bass lines. And and Glenn Hughes, my God, is arguably, you know, one of the best um, vocalists in, in in the world. And for him and Coverdale to be in the same band at the same time, um, oh, yeah. had, had, had the, like what a one-two punch on the vocal department. But um, yeah, I love Tommy Boland too. I love the teaser record is, um, is, is definitely a, a bit of a desert island record for me. Yeah, things got a lot more kind of boogie infused when, you know, Gillen left. And then when Boland came in, that it just was much more so even. Which yeah, is really cool. yeah, there's yeah. there's some good rock funk, um, you know, edge, but but not not in a cheesy way. There's just mm-hmm. some really good feel happening. And Dave Ketchum, one of his favorite drummers, was Ian Pace. So the two of us used to go on on deep dives with deep purple material. Oh yeah, you, listen to him on "You Fool No One" from Burn. That, that yeah. cowbell, right? It, it, it the guy's just a machine. Like it's it's like he's got eight arms. Yeah, or even even the title track "Burn" is insane. What a great rock yeah. track! Yeah, yeah, so good. Okay, your last tune, my friend, is ACDC "Overdose." This is great. This is like a a little um, of all the ACDC songs you could have picked. This is like a cool deep cut from "Let There Be Rock." I think this is on. <laughs> well, I had to um, I had to put in an ACDC track because I, I love 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 that band. I'm, I'm, um, with all due respect to Brian Johnson, I'm, I'm like the ACDC with Bon Scott is 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 my definitive lineup. And going back to I referenced the, the original guitar player from from Coney Hatch, Paul Van Immortal. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was a, a, and still am a very big UFO fan, and, and I loved Michael Shanker. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. so I asked. They, they announced that um, they were coming to Massey Hall. And a, a fairly unknown band called ACDC was opening. And Paul and I <laughs> bought tickets for that to go see um, uh, UFO with opening act ACDC. Oh. And I was a bit of a snob back then. And a lot of times I'd be like, yeah, no, let's let's stay at the, at the bar and we don't have to go see the opening act. And Paul kept saying to me, dude, you, you have to go see ACDC. You wait till you see these guys. They're amazing. They're amazing. So, so we finished up our beers really quickly. And that night, seeing ACDC at Massey Hall was like a, it was like a locomotive train um, drove themselves into that building, and they completely <laughs> mopped the floor with UFO. Wow! Um, bon, bon Scott was being carried around um, Massey Hall in the in the balcony on on, a, on the shoulders of a, um, one of the guys in the road crew, and <laughs> they they brought on uh, all these beach balls when they played big balls and they were booting these balls all over the stage. But oh, wow. um, I, I fell in love with that band that night and then started to go deep, deep, deep into their catalog. And as I said, when Coney Hatch started, we did a lot of stuff off the Let There Be Rock album. Um, we did Down Payment Blues and Sin City. Mm-hmm. But but the, the more I listened to those early albums, there was, there was this certain charm about Overdose and um, the false start of the track yeah. off the top when when it kind of it, it feels like a mistake, but mm. when it takes the intro of it, like even as I'm describing it to you, I can I'm getting goosebumps because the intro is so hypnotic, and when that before the band before Bon Scott even sings a single note, you can't you're you are mesmerized and you are sucked into that track and the guitar riff. 
and the, the interplay between the two um, brothers is incredible. And I, I, when I listen to that track, the volume goes on 10. I absolutely I love Overdose. And one of these days, I I'm, I'm definitely want to try to do that um, song live because it's one of the few that's in my, in my range that I think I could probably pull off. But uh, yeah, it's a big favorite of mine. You know, it's funny. I always wondered about that intro part because the first six seconds or so seem like it, like an, it's, it is a false start. It's an error. And then yeah. there's a, a little gap. In the, but they kept that in deliberately, which is really interesting. Yeah, and you know, there's moments like that, Brent. On you know, probably the best, the the most sort of urban myth um, false start would be on a, on a Led Zeppelin track when yeah. you know he says, "No, I'll leave it yet." And there's a plane going over, and they, cap- they capture. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and to me, I love those humanizing moments where where you're like, okay, everything doesn't have to be planned. It, it can you can have a little mistake here or there. Those are moments. Those that like going back to my very first pick on, on nobody's fault, like that, that moment before the track kicks in and you can hear all that shuffling around and weird noises coming. Those are things that I love on records. And the more technology caught up, the more engineers would try to take out all of those noises. And um, lots of times, you know, you would work with a producer and they say, I want you to play on the click track. And, and those things to me started to suck the life and the character out of, out of songs. Mm-hmm. So whether it's doing records with Coney Hatcher myself, or um, there's moments on on my own records where my voice has cracked, and someone will say, "Do you want to fix that?" And I'll say, "No, I want mm. to leave that because it's a moment." And I like that human factor in it because records don't have to be perfect. Um, you know, I think it, it adds some character. And you're absolutely right on that false start on on overdose. It's 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 part of the charm of the song. Yeah. Zeppelin was great with that. There's a load of those. Tangerine from Led Zeppelin 3. There's a little weird thing at the beginning, like he starts playing a song and then he stops and he starts playing Tangerine. Yeah, but oh, I, for sure. I fully agree with you. Uh, you know, the Stones were great for that too, right? So I think yes. the, first, the, the, the most obvious one is Mary Clayton's, you know, cracking voice and Give Me Shelter, but there's so many others that they just said, leave it in. Cause that's what makes, you know, the song a great song. I don't know if you ever heard that story about Van Halen and, and having their dad come in to play on um, a track called, I think it was big, bad bill of sweet William now from diver down. Oh, diver down record. Yeah. 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 Do you know that story about uh, Alex and Edward's dad coming in and playing Jan? I, I, I don't know the story, but I knew that he was a guest, um, a guest artist on that record. Yeah, so he they they brought him in and he was very nervous, obviously, but they were you know obviously very cool about it. They're like, "This is play, Dad." And so he he kept making mistakes and he would stop and he would say, "Guys, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm not I'm not up for this. Like I keep making mistakes." And Edward looked over at him and he said, "Dad, that's what makes the music great." <laughs> yeah, and you know, in that process of making records, sometimes when you make a mistake or a wrong chord, you'll be like, Oh wow, that, that actually sounds way better. Like I did hit that (laughs) chord by mistake. And sometimes you find those happy accidents we used to call them. Right. And I think uh, now that you mentioned Van Halen, um, I can't remember the name of the song. You might be able to, but there's like um, that thing, Lord strike that poor boy down. down." Um, He, you can hear him. He goes, Lord strike that. Look, you know, there's a thing where he comes in early and you clearly know that it's a mistake, but they just left it in. Yeah, exactly. What tune is that? Um, oh, it's uh, Mean Streets. Mean Street. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Love all that stuff. 
that's what the, it just enhances the listening experience because it, it it's authentic and it makes you feel like you're closer to it. Well, well, I know it's not part of your program and you told me that I had to choose five, but number six would be, uh, <laughs> um, number six would be ain't talking about love for sure. Oh, uh, Van nice. Halen. And, and just that opening riff and my God, when I got that Van Halen, the first Van Halen record, I played the shit out of it and I oh, could yeah. not believe the guitar tones on that. And I was like, what is going on here? And that opening riff of ain't talking about love, man, mm-hmm. I would, I could, I could literally see the hair on my arms um, coming up on it. And, and the, the, the chance at the end with the, Hey, Hey, Hey's and just oh, like yeah. the, the rawness of the three piece, um, you know, go, and, and I'd encourage people to go back and listen to that record because there's a lot of times when instinctually when bands record, um, their records, when it gets to the guitar solo, the guitar player will play a rhythm guitar part in there, yes. um, just to fill it out. But uh, if you listen to Van Halen one and a lot of their records there, it's just bass and, mm-hmm. and drums and Eddie. And I love the fact that there's not a lot of rhythm guitars underneath his solo, but, um, my God, what a, what a definitive riff at the beginning of ain't talking about love. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like he played with such ferocity that he didn't need to do any of that stuff, you know, and and that yeah. really came through. It just oozed out of him, and I and and I always loved the um, one of the lyrical lines of David Lee Roth in there where he said, um, "You're semi good looking." I, I thought that was a cool. <laughs> I don't know what that means, you know. You're semi good looking. <laughs> yeah, she's okay, or he's yeah, okay, whoever he was talking about. Not really good looking, just semi good looking. He, he got away with so much stuff that nobody else could, you know, and, and everybody tried in the 80s, right? Like, he, you know, we're getting funny in the back of my car. Like, just stuff like that. It's just like, yeah. it's classic Diamond Dave stuff, you know? Yeah, he, he's a beauty. But that first Van Halen album, my God, it came, it, what, what came out of the, like, there was nothing like it when it came out. No, no like a hurricane and it was almost so, like you know the first led zeppelin record it just people were almost afraid like whoa you know what is yeah. this so thank you for letting me choose six because i had to i had to i thought i was hoping we would have time to talk about ain't talking about love oh of course absolutely we can talk about 10 if you want <laughs> i want I, I need to have you back on because I, I think there's a lot more songs that you and i need to speak about I think, well, I, I kind of, I was deviating a bunch of times mentioning all kinds of songs from Tommy Bolin and, you know, and, then, <laughs> um, and getting, getting some good shots in there about other songs on records. And I, I don't want to undervalue the toys, uh, toys in the attic record with sweet emotion. And, you know, those, there's some really beautiful moments on that, on that sweet, um, toys in the attic record too. Oh God. Um, yeah. Especially toys in the attic, that song too. What a, what a riff. So it, it was a hard, tall order for me to narrow it down to five. And I have to apologize to all the beautiful songs that I didn't give credit to. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, that this is the kind of guest lament, like, you know, the collective lament is that like, you can't make me pick just five. There's no way, man. Yeah. And it, I was like, like oh, you, ah, man, why just five? <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. It's funny though, because I, it used to be 10 when I first started, it used to be 10 and the show would go for like an hour and a half. <laughs> I hear you. Right. I know you go though. down the rabbit hole and be careful what you wish for. That's right. <laughs> but you know, that being said, you are absolutely welcome to come back and we'll do five more. I'd love that. In a heartbeat, brother. I'd love yeah. to, man. Okay. Awesome. 
I will definitely call on you. Andy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I'm a fan. This has been a privilege for me. Thank you very much. Brent, um, absolute uh, pleasure, buddy, and always got time for a good Sudbury boy, and um, I, 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 your questions were great, and thank you for having me on. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. All right, stay on with me. I'm just going to wrap the show up, okay? Hang on one second. Okay. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Andy Curran. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.